Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight is uh, April 12th of 2012, and our guest tonight is Marlene Ryle, who will be talking about uh, dual diagnosis, co-occurring disorders. Also, I think we're going to touch on uh, tobacco and uh, stopping smoking, reducing smoking, and uh, various topics, and Marlene is with us Right now, before we before I introduce her, let me do a little blurb for the website and the book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay let support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking: A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org/book. Our guest Marlene is here waiting for us. Marlene, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad to have you here tonight. And just to start off, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in harm reduction therapy? And you know, how did you get involved in the whole field? Well, that, that's a really good question. Thanks for having me on. Um, I got involved in the field uh, in a sort of interesting way. I kind of started out wanting to be a parapsychologist, if you can believe it. I wanted to go to Duke University and and look for ghosts and uh, all sorts of things and figure out what was actually going on with consciousness. So when I started out as a student in graduate school, I, I wasn't thinking about being a clinician or doing treatment. I really wanted to know what was going on with our minds and how consciousness occurs and how we expand it and uh, how what our dream life is like and what the unconscious is all about. So I got very much into Jungian philosophy and also some of the uh, Carlos Castaneda work and some of the work of uh, some the sacred the sacred paths and contemplative psychology. And from there, it sort of uh, led me into a world where you were sort of on the edge, where certain experiences were more sacred and some experience with drug use um, kind of stepped out of the sacred. And I began to study the difference between some of the more natural herbal uh, substances out there and the synthetics and how that impacted people's lives. And that sort of drew me into thinking more about clinical work and how to work and, you know, not only work with people, but just be uh, in groups of people who are using different types of substances and how it impacts their lives. So it sort of naturally got me into uh, studying it more and seeing people who had experienced sort of the good and the bad with substances. And uh, the tobacco came into it because I smoked myself for 20, 20 years. And uh, when I had to confront that and learn how to address it in my life, that opened up an entire new world of skills that I, I needed to learn to use myself. So I guess that said in a nutshell is sort of how I kind of rounded out, sort of circumambulated my way into harm reduction. Well, that's a really interesting topic that you mentioned about the use of, you know, mind-altering substances and the, their relation to religion because it's really got a long history and, you know, we can see almost any substance. Tobacco has been used by the American Indians in religious rituals or peacemaking rituals, um, peyote, um, 
and you know, in the Christian tradition, you know, alcohol is standard. Wine is served at communion, and you know, alcohol is used in a lot of religious traditions, some mm-hmm. to a greater degree than others. And then there's a whole other side of religious tradition that's uh, proscribing these substances and saying, no, you shouldn't use them. You, should, you have to stay away from them. That they're sinful and wrong. So that whole question is just, you know, a fascinating bit of history. It really is, and, and we think of when we think about the history of medicine and healing, um, it usually kind of got into the idea of religious experience, and that experience was hastened or enhanced by mind-altering substances, whether they knew that they were, you know, a natural substance, or as we went forward into uh, more modern periods where we manufactured them, synthesized them. So. You work with dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders, which two different words for the same thing. Uh, tell our audience, what does that word mean, dual diagnosis? Well, dual diagnosis basically means that you are diagnosed with more than one mental health disorder. So we usually have to qualify the idea of being duly diagnosed with, that you're diagnosed with a mental health disorder and a substance use disorder. It's a little strange because they're both in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. So technically speaking, substance use disorders are mental health disorders. So it's sort of a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. But I think that the dichotomy comes probably from the history of treatment, that they've been tr- given such, such different uh, treatment paradigms in the past. That's true, and it's it's not only the treatment paradigms, but it's the funding streams that, that also dictate um, where's the money going, how how are we going to construct the uh, the ways that people are going to receive treatment, how many sessions are they going to get. Um, often it's, it's a money trail. And to this day, even though uh, even the state of New York believes in co-occurring treatment, we know that co-occurring treatment uh, is more uh, effective than treating one and then the other, either serially or even coordinating care. We know that treating uh, one or more disorders at the same time, or two or more at the same time, is going to be uh, much more effective. The, the silos have not changed, despite the knowledge and evidence being there. The city and state, well, the state actually still runs the same way. They have an Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services that, that kind of governs and, and uh monitors substance use treatment centers, and you have the Office of Mental Health Services, which monitors and and helps manage the funding on mental health treatment. Well, I know people used to have huge problems if they were duly diagnosed. They would go in looking for uh, psychotherapeutic treatment, and they'd be told, you you can't have this until you're abstinent, so go to drug and alcohol treatment. And then they'd go to drug and alcohol treatment and say, well, you have a mental health disorder, so we can't help you. And they get turned down by both sides. So it was very difficult in past days. For I mean, people had a lot of problems if they if they were duly diagnosed. Definitely so. I mean, they really just kind of were, they weren't treated. They were turned away by both. And unfortunately, uh, it still happens today despite a lot of training and even public health working to give skills and train mental health professionals to work with people with substance use disorders as well as to treat substance use professionals to work with uh, folks with substance use and mental health disorders. 
it's a cultural paradigm that needs to shift. And I think it's, it's happening, but it's happening slowly. And, and part of that reason is because there's, there's a structural norm of, you know, OASS and OMH in, in the New York State. I mean, other states have blended and merged their health departments so that this isn't as difficult to do. But here in the state that I live in, in New York State, it still presents a big problem, especially with the economy being what it is and Medicaid restructuring. We, we've gotten into a bit of a mess with uh, kind of defunding and reducing funding all over the place on mental health and substance use treatment in general. Well, I know the last time I was looking for uh, help with depression, I was looking for a psychotherapist, and you know I got asked, "Did you ever have any history of any substance abuse treatment?" And I said, "Yes." I should have lied, but you know. But I said yes, but that's long in the past, and I don't uh, have any problems with alcohol anymore, and you know my drinking is totally under control. They said, "Oh, if you haven't been abstinent for six months, you have to go. You have to check into our substance abuse treatment program before you can have any mental health treatment." I said, "Yeah, but there's no, there are no alcohol problems now. These are years old, and you know I don't have alcohol problems." And it's like, "Yes, you do. You're in denial. Check into our program." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it's philosophical and it's reinforced by the structure and, and the money flow. You know, we let's get the sessions that you're going to pay us, and it, it's not like they started out with that idea, but when you're getting defunded as a program, you want to make sure that you keep your funding going, so you kind of start to use a cookie-cutter approach to treatment. And we know it doesn't really work. The, the staff are pretty in on that, given who actually gets uh, alcohol and substance use treatment um, and the numbers of, of the success rates. And those success rates are even lower if you uh, happen to have a co-occurring disorder, co-occurring mental health disorder along with that. So here you tried to get help, and they said, well, we're gonna, this is the kind of help we think you should have. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you know, obviously not a paradigm that's going to work. You don't go into a hardware store and say, I need to buy a hammer. And someone says, well, you know, you really don't need a hammer for that. We need to give you a wrench. And that's what you're going to buy from us now. And when you're ready, we'll give you the hammer. But that doesn't make any sense. Or you have to buy a whole set of wrenches before you can get a hammer. Yes, yes. And we'll have to teach you how to use them and make sure that you've used them okay for six months. And then maybe we'll let you have a hammer. <laughs> so how do you approach uh, dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders? Well, I, I mean, I've always, I, I think of substance use disorders as part and parcel of mental health disorders if it's problematic use. So first we have to sort of determine what role does uh, the substance or substances play in your life? How do they interrelate with the mental health issues at hand? And uh, I really look at things as all being relationships. You know, mental health Issues can be so pervasive in a person's life as can be uh, substance use issues. So we really have to start, you know, to look at it as it relates to the whole person in the context of their life. That's not an easy thing to do in one or two sessions. Mm-hmm. So you have to take the long view. And, I, you know, I don't do a lot of short-term. I, I do some cognitive behavioral uh, work with with clients, but that is usually interspersed with some relational work, as well as I'm trained in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory, and I, I really like to see kind of how things 
unfold for a person and how their how, what their goals are and really learn about the role of substances in their life. So you don't require abstinence as a prerequisite for treating the mental health disorder? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I have many patients right now who who use, let's say, marijuana, for example. Um, some will come in and say, you know what, I really want to work on my marijuana use. And I'll say, well, let's find someone in. Let's talk about it, and I'll find out that they have incredible um, depression that's recurrent. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go, well... You know, when I'm talking to you, I see that the depression is a really big issue, and I'm not so sure that your marijuana use is 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 that problematic in relation to this. But how do you feel about it, and what made you want to come in and and think that this is the problem? How does how does that work for you? Tell me, you know, tell me where that comes from, and how can we make you feel better about what you're doing, and also work on the depression as well. These things don't happen in isolation generally. They, you know, it all happens as an integrated process that, that works in their life. So do you work to help people reduce uh, substance-related risks and to reduce amounts to uh, a level that people are comfortable with? Sure, yes. Well, you know, the high-risk behavior, we you know, we generally educate or I generally educate people around um, types of high-risk behaviors, how using certain amounts of substances can lead to high-risk behaviors or, or in themselves high-risk behaviors. Uh, I work with people who have um, HIV AIDS, so um, and that often is a population that has uh, usually a co-occurring substance use issues as well. So you, you have to talk about what safer use would look like and how they could also um, find other ways to enjoy themselves and feel that they can cope they like kind of go along with the Ed Kantian school of thought that some of the drug use is self-medication, that it's providing them a benefit in some way, and find out, well, what other things can we do that um, give you a sense of accomplishment, of purpose, of fun and merriment without being risky for you? Now, since uh, if we're talking about illegal drugs, then using illegal drugs always carries with it uh, some legal risks. So does the use of illegal drugs in itself constitute substance abuse, or how do you feel about that? I mean, some uh, people say it does. It doesn't, in my, it doesn't in my world, but I mean, I, that it's an inherent risk because of the, the state that we're in. Um, I, and I find myself now even, I, I think a lot about how we, how we conceptualize certain drug use, like marijuana use, in a state where it's not decriminalized. And if I went to California, they're going to look at it. Some people are going to look at it in a much different way. So it's it's a philosophical, it's sort of an artificial distinction, but at the same time, someone who is spending lots of time, money, energy at, at risk trying to ob- obtain substances, trying to um, you know find them on the street or the people that they have to deal with because of its illegality, that's an inherent risk. Um, the level that someone is willing to go to, the, the risks that they're willing to take to obtain the drug, could indicate whether it's abuse or not. Yeah, I know a lot of people uh, wind up mandated into treatment 
Well, this is especially true when I was in Minnesota. I saw this a lot, you know, because they would be arrested for possession of a controlled substance. More often than not, it's marijuana. And then they're told, you want to go to treatment or go to jail? Well, 99% will choose treatment. But then they're there, and they don't have anything to be treated for because they're not addicted. Um, They just are occasional users, and the only thing that is the problem is not the substance, but the law against the substance. Mm-hmm. This is true, but, it, you know, our, our justice system is also a mess. So, I mean, just if we, I, one of my clients was actually on grand, grand jury duty, and we were talking about um, the interesting thing uh, about this client was that they are in recovery. Um, they haven't. They they actually do harm reduction. Um, she doesn't use uh, in any way in an unhealthy way uh, right now, but had a long history of substance abuse, where she took an incredible amount of legal risks. And suddenly, she found herself on a grand jury, facing people who she would have been like 15 years ago, and having to make decisions on whether she should indict them or not. So it was a really interesting. Uh, situation she found herself in, uh, but she was describing to me situations where you know they will try to call just about anything. If one person has something in their pocket and they shake the hand of someone else, they'll call that a deal. They'll call that a sale. So there's <laughs> a very you know it's not exactly a cut and dried law that we have, and you know cops are looking for collars. Once they get that, they don't care what the you know they're looking for. You know, us, the the juries, and the the grand juries, as well as the justice system, to do its job, whatever that is. And oftentimes, you know, the people are there not because they broke any laws, even. They didn't distribute, they just had possession. Well, that's very true. And, you know, there's a lot of crack that gets smoked on college campuses by, you know, students of all colors, a lot of Caucasian crack users on college campuses, but the police aren't aren't looking to bust people there in particular because it causes a lot more problems. It's much easier for them to bust people in, you know, ghetto neighborhoods, neighborhoods of, col- of color. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I mean, it is a lot easier when someone isn't going to be able to afford anything other than a public defender um, who may even have a record. Modulate and moderate um, their mood. 
And substances have been very effective in doing that. Okay, this brings us to one point I wanted to get to, which is with schizophrenics, uh, nicotine use is very, very high, isn't it? It is indeed. And people with schizophrenia tend to draw more nicotine out of cigarettes than any other people, than the general population of people with other mental health disorders. You can see it in the metabolite of of, cigarettes. nicotine in their blood, they tend to have higher levels of cotinine with the same amount of cigarettes than the general population, which means they're drawing harder, they're drawing longer. So um, why do we think that's so? You know, because cigarettes release dopamine. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a lot of the medications that they're taking um, try to reduce or mess with the dopamine level. So the dopamine is being reduced. So they use tobacco to up the dopamine. Uh, But often what happens is the smoke in cigarettes causes the liver to clear certain uh, antipsychotic medications faster. So you have to increase the level of those medications. And that's going to sort of keep you trying to keep ahead of it so you smoke more, so you get more medication. Um, So that's one of the issues with people with schizophrenia. The other issue is there is some evidence to show that the the nicotine through smoking enhances cognitive function. Mm-hmm. And that's true. It enhances working memory. So there's sort of this trade-off between the negative health consequences of tobacco use and the, the positives of um, getting that cognitive boost from nicotine use. See, one of the ideas I've had in my head for a long time is wouldn't it be a good thing to introduce the electronic cigarettes, you know, to schizophrenics, to people in psych wards, so that they would, you know, get a less harmful way to get the nicotine into their system. You know, because lots of people, they don't like the nicotine gum, they don't like the lozenges or patch, but you give them the electronic cigarette and it's a really satisfying substitute for the real cigarette. Have you ever used it? I have not used it, but I know many people that have switched over. I mean, I quit smoking myself, so I'm going to uh, get to that eventually. But <laughs> I know a lot of people well, that got that got off cigarettes, off real cigarettes, and onto electronic cigarettes, and they're much happier. They they're much safer, and they say, you know, I can I could do this switch. I couldn't do the gum. I couldn't do the patch. I couldn't do the inhaler. But this is like a real cigarette, so it works. I can do it. What's really funny is it's really based on the premise of the inhaler because it is water, it's vapor, it's water vapor being drawn over uh, the battery. So you're not getting the nicotine in the same way as you do when you're smoking. It's coming in through the epithelial cells in your cheek, the mm-hmm. same way that the gum goes in, the same way um, that the lozenge goes in. So it is a slower route of administration. So yeah. I think there must be something psychological about the fact that you're blowing out water paper, that you're holding it in the same way, that it kind of looks like a cigarette. You do the ritual. So there's obviously something more satisfying going on than just how quick the nicotine is getting to their brain. Well, so, I think that... mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, the one thing I was going to say, that the, the problem is that the e-cigarette is not FDA approved, so it can't be used as a medication, and until... Um, companies can can make it to a standard where the nicotine is always well marked, where they leak, 
and then you'll be absorbing nicotine through the skin. Some of them are mismarked. Um, and the efficacy and health problems that might be associated with drawing water vapor over a battery, I'm not sure what the long-term health consequences of that would be. So there are some issues that would need to be ironed out, but I do think it's, you know, it's, and it's been shown study-wise to be a thousand times safer than tobacco use. Now, when I was quitting smoking, um, well, first I'm going to tell a little bit about my story because um, I have not had a cigarette in over three years now, but I I like to have a cigar about once a week or sometimes once a month. And but I don't inhale, so it's much safer, and it's very infrequent. You know, cigars don't make me want to smoke cigarettes. It's very easy for me to control. But that was my promise I made to myself. You can have a cigar up to once a week if you quit cigarettes. So I'm I'm doing harm reduction. <laughs> I'm doing harm reduction with nicotine. I'm doing abstinence from cigarettes. So tell me, how did you make it through the first six months? I threw everything, including the kitchen sink, at it, but one of the main things that I did was to use Chantix, and I read about Roy Escapa's, uh, about uh, David Sinclair's uh, extinction method for alcohol, the Sinclair method in Roy Escapa's book. And I said, you know, I think I can do this, you know, with Chantix and nicotine. So I smoked uh, my Chantix for 40 days, uh, charting all my cigarettes, reducing my numbers from 25 unfiltered hand-rolled cigarettes every day. That's like 100 Marlboros, down to two a day. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think I was. It was really because it's a partial agonist. It was really blocking the nicotine effect. So I was really getting an extinction effect. I mm-hmm. think. I think. Uh, I also I got cinnamon sticks, and I chewed on those. I used those as replacement cigarettes to you know suck on those and chew those you know all day long and you know hold those in my hand and manipulate them like cigarettes so that I had that whole part of the habit taken care of. I'd also suck on Hall's cough drops and uh, the uh, pep, the the licorice Altoids. Then yeah, you know, I'd even suck that vapor into my lungs to you know that would get that part of the habit satisfied. And uh, I did have I bought nicotine gum, but I never opened it. I bought chewing tobacco, I never opened it. I carried those around in my backpack the whole time, you know, just as this was my last fallback. But I never had to uh, rely on it, so I, you know, I threw everything at this at once. So, um, you know, I was talking to Stanton Peel about this, and he said, you know, you're a terrible test subject because you confounded everything possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly did try. I mean, you really tried everything, and, and kudos for charting. I mean, that's a, that's an incredible amount of work, and sort of take, could take the fun out of anything. So, <laughs> um, good for you. Um, I I love. Smoking, I really did. I was I was going to be a poster child in 1995 when um, when they when Bloomberg decided to take it, you know, the Clean Air and Indoor Air Act and take it out of restaurants. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go right to R.J. Reynolds and tell him let's let's build smoking clubs in in New York City so that people <laughs> have their rights and they can smoke if they want and we'll sell passes. And so I, I really felt that it was a right. And it's it's funny how the reforms reform. Because it's uh, it, 20 years in, I'd kind of passed all of my limits. I said I was going to quit when I was 30. 
only go for 10 years. So finally, when I was about 35, um, the rubber hit the road. And for me, I met I met my now husband, who told me that his dad died when he was 40 of lung cancer. And here mm-hmm. I met this guy, and he was he was 40. So I would hear him coughing because I lived in a loft studio, and I did him coughing at night when I was um, in another part of the apartment um, smoking, even with my huge industrial double smoke uh, vaporizer that I had to get rid of the smell and the stench and, and all the nastiness associated with tobacco. So I felt just terrible. And I knew that if I was going to continue with that, I had a really great motivator. And I did 30 days of saying goodbye. So mm-hmm. I told every single cigarette that I smoked for 30 days, we've had a good run. I've really enjoyed being with you. You've been there for me, but this has got to end. And I'm going to enjoy you for these last 30 days, and, and then we're done. And I went cold turkey and uh, ended up saying goodbye was a really good thing because it helped me to recognize even throughout the difficult part that the relationship that I had had with tobacco was never going to be the same again. That no matter what, it was tarnished in some way, that I would never get to freely use tobacco without compunction the way that I had been. So that psychologically kind of helped me to go through and urge, I did a lot of urge surfing, which uh, Dr. Tatarski, Andrew Tatarski, also talks about is I spend that 10 minutes bargaining with myself about what I might do. If I had a cigarette, what would it be like? Um, how would I feel about myself? How long has it been? And within five minutes or so, that craving would go away. I ate nuts like they were going out of style. Uh, I let myself eat because I'd been underweight my whole life and said, you know what, if you can stop using tobacco, if you can stop this, you can lose any any ounces or pounds that you gain. So I let myself have a free pass. The food all of a sudden got pretty amazing. Um, so I kind of used that as, as my way. I didn't use any nicotine replacement or any other oral medication um, to do it. And I've been tobacco-free for nine and a half years. And I've never had a cigarette in that whole time. That's good. Um, you know, it's a similar thing because uh, my five-year-old adopted nephew was, you know, on me. You know, and he's like, uh, you need to go to quitsmoking.com right now and stop. And, uh, his grandmother had uh, died uh, from smoking-related, you know, consequences and he was really he really didn't want me to die the same way so he's kind of i said okay when you start first grade and when i start uh my first year of school at the new school uh i will stop then and uh that's when i you know put the whole plan into effect well that's you know, those are amazing motivators so if you can find that you know intrinsic motivation works a lot better than extrinsic i've been offered money, cars, free education, all sorts of things that I probably would jump at now. Uh, but, you know, intrinsic, knowing that it's really for for the, the betterment of you and those you love is, is a lot stronger than the idea that, you know, your insurance is going to be cheaper. So it's, it's helpful to have that. You know, what well, I do is I try to build build that extrin- you know, the intrinsic motivation with people. Find and out I'm, what you know their goals are, mm-hmm. and, and I'm how still, the tobacco gets in the way. 
I'm still a believer in smokers' rights. I think, you know, that uh, as far as I'm concerned, the bar owner should decide if he wants his place to be smoking or not smoking. You know, a lot of bar owners now are realizing that they're going to get a lot of customers in if they have the bar non-smoking. But I really don't think it's the government's business. But <laughs> that's a whole other issue, I guess. It, it is indeed. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said that there are folks who use tobacco who should have a right to use it in places where they're not going to negatively impact other people. Um, I definitely, I think the jury finally came in on secondhand smoke with the last Surgeon General's report. Um, however, people really should be able to do what they want in the privacy of their own home and and to and take whatever risks that aren't going to impact others. And I mean, this country was really built on tobacco, so it's a really interesting, when we think about it, if it weren't for that plant, um, it probably wouldn't exist right now. Because we funded, you know, the Revolutionary War under tobacco, we funded the Civil War with tobacco. Um, tobacco built this country. <laughs> well, I feel like if people get to drive their automobiles down the street and pollute my air, and I don't, who don't drive have to put up with that, I mean, you know, I will say, you know, you can lock me up overnight with a in a garage with a running car or in a, in a garage with a smoker, and I know which is going to kill me. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of things in the world that aren't good for us. I mean, what are we going to say about people who eat too much sugar or saturated fat? Um, it's getting to be a similar thing. I mean, we've really stigmatized. Um, you know, I think the tobacco users were the, sort of the last bastion of uh, publicly endorsed I mean, alcohol is, is there too, but you know, this one really was that exception. Tobacco use somehow got this status that wasn't like all you know other drugs, and it mm-hmm. has some more harmful consequences. But at the same time, it's been socially acceptable for hundreds of years, and it's only recently that we've really stigmatized and and really been mean to tobacco users. And that's not right. That's really not the way you know we've made we've cornered them. And sort of we're penning them up to say, well, you can smoke in this 10-foot by 10-foot little kiosk that's 200 feet away from any living human being um, so that nobody gets hurt. And that's, you know, that's really not really fair to do that to people. No, it's not. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, people can, well, they can still do this. You can still be at an AA meeting and go outside and be smoking a cigarette and saying, I'm sober and free, I'm chemical-free and clean. Uh, but you're sucking on the most addictive substance known to man. What are you saying? Yeah, and it's actually related to a lot of uh, people's relapses because you're, you know, that same rut in the brain that's been created by you know, the, the central segmental area and the frontal lobe is continually being reinforced by the tobacco use. So um, if if abstinence is really one's goal, uh, in the long run, it would benefit them to to get rid of the tobacco habit because that's the one that you do. You know, how many times a day did you do it? With a, you know, 25 cigarettes a day or 30 cigarettes a day or even just a pack a day, you're putting your hand to your mouth and taking a hit 200 times. That's more than you're going to smoke crack or use weed or use mm-hmm, mm-hmm. any other of these drugs of abuse. So it's incredibly highly reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Well, with uh, my cigarettes, which I rolled myself, they last twice as long as the ones you buy from the factory. So I get twice as you know much smoke time out of each cigarette, and then I don't have I didn't have filters, 
So I got, you know, twice the nicotine boost from each drag. So. And I bet yeah. you drank a lot of coffee. Because <laughs> the coffee clears your liver quicker. Caffeine goes through your system quicker when you I'm use tobacco. I'm still highly addicted to caffeine. Um, it's my Scandinavian background there. Scandinavians drink twice as much coffee as Americans. They ingest twice as much caffeine as Americans per capita. So, that's well, one. I you know, I'm European. I, I grew up with the you have coffee at breakfast and you have it after dinner. And when I had to give up that after dinner cup of coffee, it, it really hurt. So... Well, I think we've covered the topics we were going to cover tonight. Um, We are recording into the archive so people can listen in the archive to what we've recorded. Uh, The the live streaming did end at the half-hour point, but it's all going to be here for everyone to listen to. But I think I want to thank you very much for being our guest on the show this evening. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And everyone, come back next week, next Thursday, when our guest will be Cynthia Hoffman, marriage and family therapist who does couples therapy and also harm reduction groups in San Francisco. So thank you, everyone, and good night. Good night, Ken. Great to talk to you.